And our reading is 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. And we're near the end of this sermon series. Next week is the last one of our hidden gems of the New Testament. We uh, tried to divide 1 Peter into two halves. So last week, Pastor Victoria more or less covered chapters 1 and 2. And this week, I'm covering chapters 3, 4, and 5. The problem with 1 Peter is it's not that small. And so we can't preach the entire thing. So she, she preached something from 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to preach from 1 Peter chapter 4. And as I look at these things, I realize perhaps we could do a whole series someday on just 1 Peter, because it's actually much bigger than its sort of companion books, 2 and 3 Peter. But nonetheless, this is how we made these choices, and I'm really glad for it, because there's something in here for us today that I think is very valuable and very important. And that is that we are called called to and also warned about and admonished, I guess you could say, that we may suffer for the name of Jesus. We may suffer for the name of Jesus. And if you were listening to me talk to the kids, um, we may ask ourselves, how much do we indeed suffer in this day and age? It was very different in the time of Jesus and in the centuries of the early church. There were times when you were killed just for being a Christian. You were thrown into the arena or the Colosseum in Rome, and wild animals would tear you to bits for the entertainment of the Roman populace because you were a Christian. That's what happened. Now, we don't see that happening in this country, and yet, all around the world, this is continuing to happen. And as Barbara has mentioned before, there was a woman named Asya Bibi, and evidently, if I'm heard correctly, she's now out of Pakistan and on her way to Netherlands. That's not true? Oh, I saw something this morning that she was on her way to Netherlands, but that, okay. Well, hopefully she's on her way to the Netherlands. We don't know. Uh, I, I didn't see the exact notation on that, so I don't know if that's true. But yet, here was a woman who was um, persecuted in her own country because she was a Christian. And so it does happen in the rest of the world, and I would argue that on some levels, it happens even in our country today, and we'll get, we'll get to that. Um, this letter by Peter is very much about suffering. That's one of the major themes of this letter, is that Christians would suffer. And so you could almost look at this passage that we're looking at today as almost an encapsulation or a thematic summary of the whole letter, although there's other parts of the letter and other emphases here and there. Now, um, what we're not sure of is what exactly the suffering was that Peter is telling people about. There was systemic persecution of Christians at various times and in various places. Sometimes it varied by region inside the Roman Empire. Sometimes it was an empire-wide policy to persecute Christians. Um, we don't know if, that's, if this is about that or if it's just the kind of persecution that comes from being a Christian that Jesus himself warns his disciples about. And there's also persecution not just from uh, the government, but there's persecution from other religions, other pagan religions, and even Judaism at some points persecuted Christianity which is interesting, right? Because at first they were together. They were in the synagogue together. And then as the differences got greater and greater, there was a point in, in time in history when Christians were actively excluded from the synagogue. And there was sort of a curse 
that was laid upon them that they shouldn't come into the synagogue anymore. So there was persecution, there was difficulty, there was trial. Um, Generally speaking, it seems to me that if you look at the scriptures and you look at what Christians believe, that aside from everything else that may be happening in any culture at any time, there is something about Christians that rubs other people the wrong way. We're just kind of like the burr in the saddle, all right? And why is that? Well, it's because the gospel calls things for what they are. It calls our sinfulness into account. It says some very countercultural things like you cannot work your way out of this, whereas in all our cultures, if you don't work, you don't eat. And we translate that into the spiritual realm very much. But the, the Christian gospel is that you're saved not by what you do, but by what somebody else has done for you. And you're saved by faith, not by your efforts. And all this is so hard for other people to get. And um, Christians believe that there's sin and brokenness in the world. And for the, the optimists in this world who think that human life is perfectible apart from God, this seems very pessimistic and dark, but I think it's just realistic. And you can only get to the true good news if you had, unless you first embrace and acknowledge the real bad news, which is that we're fallen, broken people. The world doesn't want to hear this, partly because it doesn't want its own sin revealed, but partly because it doesn't want anyone else to save it. It wants to save itself. That's how we're wired. That's the fall. That's the brokenness. So one thing we want to make sure we pay attention to when the Christian faith is an offense to other people is that it is only our Christian faith that is an offense, not something within us. So we say sometimes that we do not add to the offense of the cross. The cross is offensive enough to this world as it is. It's a scandal to this world. And so we don't add to it by being obnoxious people ourselves which is very hard for me, as you can tell. You know, it's just like, oh, there's Hans Eric. So, so that's our, somewhat of our introduction here. We're looking at 1 Peter 4. It's the larger context of the letter is suffering. And our passage today is uh, sort of an encapsulation of the whole letter, but also this somewhat non-intuitive encouragement that in the midst of sufferings, we may find joy. Ah, that's a challenge. We're going to get to that. So let's go ahead and read. 1 Peter 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, begins like this. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial or fiery ordeal. You may, could be translated. Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. 
For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and may you add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I had a friend in college, sort of in college, more like graduate school. I was studying abroad in Norway and living in the dormitory with another American student. He was studying history, uh, not theology. He was not a Christian. And he had grown up in Maine. His parents were both atheists, and they were college professors. Do you kind of get the picture here, right? Kind of know. And um, I didn't know any of that, but I I was going to a Bible study with some Christians there in Norway, and I invited him to the Bible study. And boy, did he scoff, like, oh, like that was the dumbest thing that anyone had ever said to him. Um, and I was like, oh, he's not a fan, you know, he's not a fan. I'm, and uh, he's a dear friend. And what it turned out that both of us were staying on. This was during summer school. And both of us stayed on. He stayed on as a Fulbright scholar. I stayed on to study at the seminary in Oslo. And we ended up in the same building, the same dormitory building. And since we were the only Americans around, you know, in a foreign country, we knew each other. And we, we both knew what Seinfeld was. You know, none of the Norwegians knew what Seinfeld was. And so you, sometimes you just need to talk with people in your own language who have the same cultural background to feel like, you know, you belong somewhere when you're in a foreign country. And so we ended up spending all this time together. We traveled together. We traveled to the north of Norway together with a few friends. We traveled down to Turkey together. And sometimes we'd talk about religion. Sometimes we wouldn't. He would kind of ask me questions. Sometimes he'd poke at me about Christianity because he thought it was stupid. You know, he grew up as an atheist. His parents were atheists. And um, I... I I said, what is it that, you know, what is it that you think about when you think of Christians? And he said, you know, the Christians really bug me because they seem like they think that they have everything figured out. And he didn't mean that in a nice way, right? He didn't mean that in like, a, oh, they're so smart, you know, like they've really figured it out. It's more like they seem like they think like they've got it all figured out. He saw a lot of sort of non-curiosity intellectually, I guess you could say. He, he saw a lot of arrogance in Christians. He just saw, you know, people that he didn't really want to spend so much time with. But he knew I was, because there was no, like, secret about why I was there. I was there to study theology at the seminary in Oslo, and so he knew that. Um, and we spent more and more time together, and after a year, he went home. He went back to America, and, um, but he met a nice Catholic girl, you know how this goes, you know? And um, she got him to go to church, and um, he remembered some of our conversations, and we talked on the phone once, and he said, you know what, Hans Eric, I've become a Christian now. And I'm really, I'm really glad that you never, like, shoved it down my throat or anything like that. And I'm beginning to see now some of the things that you and I were talking about, and Jesus to him was, like, amazing, like, Somebody who didn't know Jesus all his life and then finally met Jesus, Jesus was amazing, you know? And he was happy. He was like, this was a really good development in his life. This was a real, like, 
like, it was almost like this is something he'd been looking for all his life, and he finally found it. I mean, that was putting it a little too strongly, but he was really happy about this. And I said, you know, you seem really happy about this. He's like, yeah, I am. And I said, how, how does your family feel about this? And he said, not so much. You know, they're mad. Like, right? They're mad. You know, you think about the, the Christians and their kids go off and become atheists, and that really is disturbing. I think it's just as disturbing when the atheist kids goes off and becomes a Christian. Like, what? We raised you better than this, and we taught you all the atheistic creeds and ways, and you've now abandoned, you're dead to us. They didn't say that. They, he didn't, they didn't forsake him, but he, he said, it was strange, because here was something that was good for me, made me happy, gave me fulfillment, and my family was angry about it. You kind of get the sense of what's going on in this country all the time, is that there are people who love Jesus Christ as their Savior, and there are people who can't stand it. And, and Christianity is, on some level, the enemy of this society. It's intolerant, it's broken, it's arrogant. There's all sorts of problems with it, right? So, were they happy for him? No. And I said, welcome to my world. You know, welcome to the faith. This is, some this is kind of par for the course. The world is not thrilled that you're a Christian. Your parents are not thrilled that you're a Christian. In this life, you will have trouble. That's John 16, 33. And to me, that's one of the truest things that Jesus ever says. In this life, in this world, you will have trouble. So what I'd like us to do is go back to the scriptures. And I want to take this verse by verse because there's just a few verses. And I think we can unpack this in kind of a constructive way. So take a look at verse 12. And I'm going to read it again, just one verse at a time. And just a few comments on each verse if you want to take notes. So verse 12 begins like this. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Now, as I mentioned earlier when I read that, uh, that word there for painful trial is related to the word for fire. So sometimes some Bible translations have fiery ordeal, which is another way of putting it, and it's a similar word to use, that's used to describe a crucible. Remember what a crucible is? It's something that a silversmith or a goldsmith uses. It, they put all the ores and rocks into it, and they heat it to a very high heat, and all the slag, all the impurities just go away, they rise to the top and they take them off and the rest comes out as smoke. And all that's left then is this pure alloy or pure, not even a pure alloy, a pure metal like gold or silver, copper, things like that. You would mix them together to make them alloys. That's what an alloy is, two metals or more mixed together. And so what Peter is saying is that there's, do not be surprised at this crucible that you are in right now. And uh, we hear about the crucible elsewhere in the scriptures. Now, why not be surprised? Because he's talking, he, he knows Jesus. Jesus says, even in Matthew that Chris read, Jesus predicts his own suffering. The Son of Man is going to suffer. And if you want to be my followers, you also must suffer. You must take up your cross and follow me. In John 16, he told his disciples that they will have trouble. So Jesus has told people, this, this is not like a, switch, a bait and switch, like become a Christian and there's no trouble. <laughs> it's easy. No, 
all along, Jesus said, this will cost. This will cost you a great deal, not just money or time or energy. It will cost you the hatred of other people. It will cost you persecution and suffering from the world, and it may cost you your life even. So do not be surprised at this crucible that you're in, as, this, as if this is something strange. This is always a part of bearing the name of Jesus. Now verse 13, but rejoice, the hardest verse in the Bible here, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And I don't really want to be flip about this. This is, again, this is not easy, okay? This is... um, You can, one, it's one thing to read it and say rejoice, but it's another thing to do it. And I don't, I'll be honest here, I don't think I've suffered anywhere near what other people in this world have suffered for the sake of Jesus. That's absolutely true. In small ways, in inconsequential ways, in, in ways that are more an annoyance than any, you know, type of real problems in my life. But how does somebody who is suffering because of Christ feel joy about that when you're in the midst of suffering? How do you do that? Well, Peter kind of points to this. Part of it is that, and the next verse tells us even more, that Christ is going to be revealed in some glory. So if you participate with him in his sufferings, which was demeaning to him in some ways, which was humiliating to him in some ways. If you participate in his sufferings, then you will also participate with him in his glorification. So that as he is raised, so you too will be raised. So it's about the future. That this momentary, what they call light affliction, but it's not light really at all, is it? Will have this yield in the future of this great glory. So that that can happen. But also, you know what? It sometimes, in a weird way, is good to remember who is upset with you. All right? If a sinner is upset with a Christian, that's to the Christian's credit. We'll see this. I'll give you an example. When I was pastoring at a different church, and and I don't say this lightly, and and there's definitely things I can do better, but somebody not to my face, they criticized my ministry, which is fine. You can always criticize me. I prefer you do it straight to me instead of around and about. And um, somebody came to me and said, so-and-so said they don't think you're doing a very good job of X, Y, or Z. Normally, the the people pleaser in me would have been like, I'm going to melt right now. Somebody doesn't like what I've done, you know? But in that moment, I was like, you know, I know that person. And... uh, just about everybody in the church was tired of them. <laughs> they had been meddling in everybody's business. And in a weird way, and I'm just telling you what happened, I thought to myself, it would have been worse if they had been commending me, strangely. If this person thinks I'm doing a poor job, I must be doing the right thing, honestly. Really, then that sounds a little flip. And I honestly, if I do anything wrong, I really want to know, and I do make mistakes. But in this case... I actually thought that this person's critique of me was a badge of honor. 
strangely, okay? And I think of this a little bit, that's somewhat like what Peter is saying here, is that the source of this persecution is enmity towards God. And if you also experience this suffering, it means that you are identified as being on God's side. That's good news, right? It means you really are on God's side. So, count it as joy. Rejoice in it and be overjoyed. So, um, and we ask ourselves, do we really want the approval of this world? Think about that. Okay, we'll get to it later. Verse 14, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, I want to get a little more specific because it's, it, it has a formulation here which I think is good, it's interesting. It says you're insulted because of the name of Christ. And that construction means that you have the name of Christ. It means on account of you calling yourself a follower of Jesus. It means that you're a Christian. So sometimes, you know, people are named after the person who started a movement. So people who follow Christ are called Christians. And that actually could have been an insult. Uh, we, we keep talking about Lutherans today, and it's actually here, right here in my text. It's, I'm going to talk about the Lutherans. The first Lutherans, they didn't want to be called Lutherans. They were Christians. But the enemies of, the, of Luther and the Lutherans called his followers Lutherans, and it was an insult because the implication was that Luther was just starting a cult, and they were his mindless followers. And so they, the first Lutherans didn't like being called Lutherans. It was, you know, they, they bore the name of Luther, which they really, you know, they didn't really want to. But with usage and time, Lutheran came to mean, hopefully, a pretty good thing, right? Same thing here. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, it means it's because you're a Christian. But if that's the case, then you're blessed. Because why? Because when you're a Christian, you have all this great stuff. You have the spirit of glory and of God resting on you. And this is the important contrast. The world sees something that's foolish. The world sees something that could look to them like arrogance or delusional. But the ultimate reality is that Christ has given his followers this incredible gift of the Spirit, which is far greater than any riches in this world. I mean, that's the absolute reality that Christians live in, and I think we forget, is that in Christ, we have this immense gift. And to the world, they can't see it, but we know we have it. And so it doesn't matter. All it's saying is, if you're insulted because you're really a Christian, good. That's a blessing to you because you have this incredible gift of the Spirit. And this harkens actually back to the Sermon on the Mount and specifically to the Beatitudes. This is the very same word where it says you are blessed or you are happy. So this is almost like Peter is adding one of the, a new Beatitude to the Beatitudes, like blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. And Peter might add, blessed are those who are insulted because of the name of Christ, because they have the spirit and glory of God resting on them. Isn't that great? So we're almost like we get one new beatitude that you never knew about, hiding out here in 1 Peter. So it is a hidden gem. That's one of the, this is the gem inside the gem. I'm excited. All right. 
Verse 13. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. And so here is the idea is that if you suffer, Peter's kind of asking her for a reality check here. Don't let it be because you're actually a bad person. Only let it be because you're a Christian. Don't add any offense to the cross by being a, a lawbreaker, because then you might actually just be suffering for being a lawbreaker, not for being a Christian. Now, when I was um, a kid, I loved this show. It was a crazy show. It was called Sesame Street. Do you ever watch Sesame Street? And they had this song, you know, one of these things is not like the other. One, one of these, th three of these things are kind of the same. Can you tell me which thing is not like the other before I finish this song? And I thought of that when I read this, because I was reading this list of all the offenses that you should not be adding to the offense of the cross. You should not be a murderer. Ah, yes, don't be a murderer. Or a thief. Or any other kind of criminal. Good. Or a meddler. Could you tell me which thing before I finish this verse? Or that word could be translated busybody. It's the same idea. It's a very long Greek word. Alag og episkopos. Don't have to remember it. It's a very strange word. It's only used once here. But there's other words like it. Paul talks about not being a busybody. Um, my father had this expression. And it was kind of a nice way of, something, of saying something that's a little hard to say. When someone was being too nosy, he would say, that's none of your beeswax. Because <laughs> saying that's none of your business is a little, you know, it's not very Scandinavian. You know. But beeswax is, it's, it has a little bit of a light edge to it, so you can kind of soften the blow. And later in life, I became a beekeeper, so I began to love it even more. That's none of your beeswax, you know. It's none of your business. And um, I think we have the right to say that sometimes. If somebody's involving themselves too much in other people's business to say, you know what, that's none of your beeswax. Get your nose out of that. You don't need to put your nose in that. But here's the interesting thing. It, does it belong on this list, right? Murderer, thief, criminal somebody who needs to mind their own beeswax. I'm not sure. But for Peter, it did, right? It's all on the same list. The world around him didn't like meddlers. It didn't like people meddling in other people's beeswax. It didn't. It, it led to turned upside down communities and churches and families. And so it, it, it turns out that socially this was a big problem was too much meddling, was something that seemed like the whole world hated. And Peter's saying, don't do something that the whole world hates anyways. Only suffer because you're a Christian. Don't add anything else to it. So it's about clarity. And, and actually, so then you can't really rejoice in your suffering if you suffer because you've killed or stolen or meddled. You deserve what you get then, and it's no credit to you. But... Look at verse, two, verse 16, and verse 16 starts with a but or a however. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So if your suffering is solely for the sake of being a believer and you have not added any offense to the cross, 
then praise God that you bear that name. It's good news for you. He goes on, For it is time, verse 17, for judgment to begin with the family of God, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? He's drawing on the Old Testament here. One thing that he may be thinking about is Malachi chapter 3. And if you like Handel's Messiah, you'll recognize this because that figures prominently in Handel's Messiah. Uh, he shall purify, and he shall purify, he shall purify the sons of Levi. So it goes, who can endure the day of his coming? He is like a refiner's fire. Oh, isn't that interesting? These themes are coming back. He is like a refiner's fire, and he will purify the sons of Levi. The judgment of the world starts within the family of God first. And in Malachi 3, the judgment of the nation starts with the Levitical order, the priestly class. So God always judges those who he thinks should be most accountable first. And then he judges the rest of the world. So he starts with the Levites in Israel, and, and he's saying he'll start with the Christians in the, in the world. And this judgment and this suffering has some other purpose for us. It burns away our attachment to this world. It's like a fire that only leaves the pure metals behind. And that's what I would actually pray for if I had the courage to pray for it, was for God to test me with the fire of suffering, so that whatever I'm attached to in this world could burn away, and I could only be left with this part of me that only loves him desperately, you know? Maybe you could pray for me that I could have the courage to pray that for myself, because that's a scary prayer to me, but I think this is where this is going, is that this judgment is going to come. And it's going to burn away everything. And I'd much rather that this start now. I'd much rather live my life in such a way that I'm really only focused on God and I'm not attached to the things of this world that don't matter. I do want to be attached to this world because I want the world to be redeemed through my ministry. Don't get me wrong there. I don't want to say goodbye to the world. But I want God's view of the world to be my view of the world. And I want to rejoice in suffering. And I want the sufferings that come from the world to, to cleanse me. So that this fiery ordeal will leave only what's pure in God's eyes. I can only love this world and the people in it. And even the people who hate the name that I bear. Which is the name of Jesus. Verse 18, it says this. If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly? And the sinner. This is a quotation from Proverbs 11.31, which reads, If the righteous receive their due on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? How much more is often a, sort of a phrase we see where there's a sort of a comparison. If, if the righteous are going to get something, how much more will the ungodly get this kind of judgment? And this is both a warning and an encouragement. And I want to put it this way. The people are out there, they're persecuting God's children, especially in other countries, but even in this country. Um, that story I told about the crossing guard, there was that moment where we both were kind of like, are we even allowed to be talking about this right now? 
We're standing in the middle of a street, admitting to each other that we're Christians. And it felt a little bit like, you know, it shouldn't feel that way, but it, there's something about this valley that made me feel that way, okay? And then I said, you know, it's still legal. <laughs> it's still legal to be a Christian. And what said it all was his, what he said after me. He's like, you're right. Like, this was a revelation that we're still allowed. No, no, of course we're still allowed to be Christians. Of course this is a right that we have. It's part of our Constitution. It's in the First Amendment. It's probably not going to go away anytime soon. The sky is not falling on Christians in this country. If anything, if you look at case after case in the Supreme Court, all sorts of religious liberties have been upheld. But nonetheless, there's this atmosphere where you shouldn't talk about it. You shouldn't be that open about it. You shouldn't toot that horn too loudly. And that's what I feel, and I'm trying to contend with that. I'm trying to ask myself, is this our suffering for the sake of Jesus? That we're kind of told, well, you can believe what you want, but don't be, just keep it to yourself, right? Peter's saying, if this is a word of encouragement, but also a word of warning, and I think a word of opportunity, is that if we're going to be judged, how much more will the godless be judged? And that doesn't comfort me so much in the sense that, I mean, there's that part of you that would be like, oh, they're going to get there someday. That feels great, which would make you kind of a sociopath. You don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to think that way. But it should motivate us that there are people in this world who are opposed to what God is doing and wanting, like my friend's parents like my friend. And yet, they're closer to God than the apathetic, I think. The apathetic are out there, nothing will touch them. But those who are opposed to God, I think God, they're actually very quite close. There's just some relationship there that will flip that script. And so I don't want my friend not to go to heaven. Heaven would be a poorer place without my friend there. I'm looking forward to both this life and the next when I'm with him and his wife, his Catholic wife, you know, up in heaven. Great. This motivates me that as much enmity as there is in this world towards Christians, there is opportunity for Christians to be light in this world and to love those who hate. This is how Jesus loved. This is what I was saying to the children. When you meet that one person who's particularly hostile to your faith, love that person even more. That person has the crosshairs on them, and it's God saying, that's the next Apostle Paul, the one who persecuted the church. And that person may end up being one of the most amazing Christians that's ever lived because they're already thinking about these things. So I'm motivated by that. Uh, I'm not comforted that the people will be judged. I'm motivated that we want to be like, be like the one who leaves the 99 and goes searching for the lost one and bring them back into the fold. So then, verse 19, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So what is the outcome of all this? And Peter wraps it up nicely. There's application at the end of this. Those who suffer should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Sometimes this is called trust and obey. 
It's all in here, isn't it? Trust and obey, which is kind of trite, and there's a song, right? And so the problem with songs is you sing it, and then you can forget it, right? It's just, oh, I sang it. I don't have to do it. No, it's just simple. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves, trust their faithful creator, and continue to obey him by doing good. It's a simple thing to say, but it's not simple. It's not simple at all. How do we trust God in suffering? It's not simple. How do we obey God? It's not always that simple. It's work. We continue to work, do the work that God calls us to. And here's what it is. We love the people of the world and even sacrifice for them, and especially the ones who hate us because of his name. That's our calling in this world. They're going to hate us in this world. We're going to have trouble. But Jesus says he has overcome the world. And he will reach the world through us. He will reach those people. And so we count it as joy when we suffer. We count it as greatness. Because we, if we share in the sufferings of Christ, we share in the glory that's revealed in Christ. So finally... I just want to ask some questions because these are questions that I'm really struggling with myself. Not about this text. This text all makes perfect sense. But I want to ask you, what if we don't have trouble? Hmm? What if we're not suffering? Ask yourself if we have gotten too comfortable, okay? How many times in the last month have you had to say to someone, no, I can't do that, it's against my beliefs. I can't laugh at that joke. I can't be party to this gossip. I can't do business that way. Really? How many times in the last month have you had to say that to anyone? What has it cost us to, the, to bear the name of Jesus? And if it's nothing, if it's nothing, then I wonder. Because if you're persecuted because of the name of Jesus and you rejoice because people see something in you, but if we're not getting any suffering, I'm not saying we should invite suffering, but actually I am saying we should invite suffering. If we're not suffering, we may not be proclaiming. If we're not suffering, we may not be living differently. If we're not suffering, we may not be vulnerable. We may not be extending ourselves to this world in the hope that some may be redeemed. If we're comfortable, we may not be following what Jesus said. We may be like that servant who takes the treasure and buries it in the ground rather than going out and risking it so that more return could come to the master. So if the answer to all these questions is nothing, then I wonder... I wonder, and there's more to think about, and I just want to leave it at that, to wonder. If we're not suffering, why not? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we may suffer. Help us to count it as joy. And Lord, if we're not suffering, help us to know why. Amen.